Psalm 133. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In this year that we've been back here to my hometown, and in these six months when we've been in public worship together, I've been learning much about our region. And I think I made the mistake of thinking, well, I'm from here, and so I understand this place, but I haven't been from here a long time, and I've changed, and the place has changed as well. Now, you may know uh, that South Floridians do not have a reputation for being the friendliest people in the United States. There are other regions in the country, places in the South, places in the Midwest, that have a a reputation for being exceedingly friendly. We don't have that reputation, but I have found that this is to our advantage. Now, I'm all in favor of uh, friendly cultures, but I have found that with uh, a culture that is not known for friendliness, that a little bit, a little bit of friendliness goes a very long way. I have been out and about a lot, and I have on my phone, I try to write down people's names so I can pray for them, but I have on my phone a list of about 100 people. And these are 100 people that I just met, and I've gotten to talk to them about the gospel, I've gotten to talk to them about our church, and I want to tell you how I got into these conversations. This is what I did. I started them like this. I said something like, Hi. Sometimes I say something like, Hello. Or sometimes I, I get a little more creative and say, Hey, how's it going? Or something like, good morning. And I have been amazed that simply greeting people and asking how they're doing has opened up conversations, some that have lasted for an hour, some that have ended in praying together, wherever it might be, on the street or in the beach or in the restaurants. And it all started with just a little tiny bit of friendliness. And as I interact with people around town, and as I interact with Christians as well, there seems to be a common thread as I talk to them about their lives. And one common thread, among others, is that a lot of people feel like there's not much community here in South Florida. And I'm not sure exactly, I'm still investigating, and I need you to help me, who have lived here for longer, to try to understand the culture better so we can minister here effectively, But I'm not sure if it's because of the mix of cultures, uh, if it's because of the the, uh, tourist nature of the area that people come and go so much that we don't really know who's who and if they live here, if they don't, or how long they'll be around, the transience of the area. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the hot weather and the air conditioning and all of the electronic gadgets that we have that keep us entertained and inside and not with others. But it seems that many Christians and non-Christians say the same thing, that they don't have deep connections with other people. Also, I think, uh, although 
the big churches, there's some very big churches here and doing wonderful ministries. There are very few actually very big churches. Most churches are not big churches, but it seems like the big church model of what a church is and what a pastor is seems to permeate the Christian culture. I'm discovering that in different ways, particularly as I try to pastor. Um, I've done things like visit people in the hospital, and the reaction I've gotten from them is shock. They've never seen something like that. A pastor visiting somebody who's sick in the hospital. And also, as I'm in conversation with people, I'll have them say things to me like this. They'll say, oh, I I better let you go. Uh, I better let you go because I'm sure you're very busy. And it makes me wonder, what do they think that pastors do? (laughs) Other than try to minister the gospel to people in hospitals or in their homes or on the beach or on the telephone or through text communication or whatever it might be. So that's left me wondering if the the model of a, a large church where it's difficult to have access to the pastor has kind of permeated the Christian culture here so there's not a lot of expectation of of relationship or connection with the pastor or with others. Over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at our mission as a church from Psalm 67, our mission to our neighbors and to the nations. And then last week, we got to look at our worship and our discipleship, our learning. But all of these things both contribute to what we're looking at today, community, but they also grow out of community. So in some ways, community is the goal, that we do what we do in order to form community, but at the same time, community is that out of which we do the other things that we do. Um, A uh, a pastor, he's now retired, but he uh, started a church in New York City. Uh, Tim Keller was a professor of mine, but he started a church called Redeemer, and he wrote this book about, after many years of ministering there that I've been reading, it's called Center Church, and I was just reading this past week the chapter on connecting people to one another. And I was struck by what he says about community being the way that we disciple each other and the way we reach out to others as well. He writes this, he says, Accordingly, the chief way in which we should disciple people, or if you prefer, to form them spiritually, is through community. Growth and grace... Wisdom and character does not happen primarily in classes and instruction, through large worship gatherings, or even in solitude. More often, growth happens through deep relationships and in communities where the implications of the gospel are worked out cognitively and worked in practically in ways no other setting or venue can afford. And then he goes on and writes that community itself is one of the main ways we do outreach and discipleship and even experience communion with God. And of course we're going to have Sunday worship service, we're going to try to grow here, we've talked about that in the past weeks and we're always trying to to bring more people into our worship, but he's saying we need to have a community in which to bring people in order to do this kind of outreach and in order to disciple each other. Well, the theme of this, this short psalm is that community. The community which is the goal, but the community which is also the base of all the other things we do. And the theme of this psalm is, is in the very first lines. 
But before we look at the very first line, look at the title. We haven't been giving much attention to the titles of the Psalms. But what's the title of the psalm? What's it say? Before you get to the first one, it's what? A Song of Ascents of David. And if you look back at the, the Psalms from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134, they are all called a song of ascents, a song of going up. Now, we think that the reason that they were called that is because pilgrims would sing these songs when they were going up to Jerusalem. And if you look in the Old Testament, the, the direction uh, that you use to go to Jerusalem is always up. Even if you started in the Himalayas, if you go to Jerusalem, because it's on a mound, you're always going up to Jerusalem. And it's also the idea that that's the closest, the idea in the Old Testament, that's the closest place to God. That's where you meet with God, and so you're always going up. And so these pilgrims would gather three times a year. Three times a year from all Judah and Israel, and they would gather in Jerusalem. They would gather for Passover, they would gather for Pentecost, 50 days later, and they would gather for tabernacles or booths, where they would make tents, basically, lean-tos, and they would camp in order to remember that 40 years they were in the desert and God provided for their needs. But three times a year, they would gather, and they would gather from all over, and as they gathered together, they had a common group of songs that they would sing. That's, that's what we think these were. And these were the songs. They were songs of ascent as the people gathered from all over uh, the, the promised land and go up to Jerusalem. But after the dispersion of Jews, uh, you may know that the Jews were eventually dispersed, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians in the 700 BCs and then the 600 and 500 BCs. And they were dispersed. They were spread out. Uh, they call it the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. And so not only were the Jews then uh, coming from Judea and Samaria, well, not Samaria, but, uh, but Galilee, uh, what was the promised land, but they were coming from all over the, the known world in order to be in Jerusalem. And so they were bringing different languages and they were bringing different cultures, but they had the same songs that they could sing. Uh, if you know something about the uh, book of Acts, you'll recall that in Acts chapter 2, uh, they, the, this is right after Jesus died and rose again and had ascended into heaven, and his disciples were gathered in Jerusalem. And they were gathered during one of these feasts, and it was the Feast of Pentecost. And I just want to read the list of who was there. These were Jews. These were Jews from all over, but listen to where they are. They said, are these not all Galileans who are speaking? How is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabians. That's 15 different groups. I'm sure the list wasn't exhaustive. And so 15 different groups with different cultures, all Jews uh, or proselytes coming into Judaism, but they were from, from all these different places and nations speaking different languages with different cultures, but they were united. And that looks like what's being celebrated here. As they're singing, walking along, and they run in, the, the, those from, from, uh, from Phrygia run into those from Arabia, they're singing the same song, and they're singing how, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity, even as they're in the act of coming together in unity. Now, they celebrate two things. 
They celebrate how good, but they also celebrate how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And those are two related, but not necessarily identical things. Because you can have something that is good, that is not pleasant. Like going to the dentist. That's a good thing, to be able to go to the dentist to get our teeth repaired, isn't it? Is it pleasant? No. Anybody enjoy going to the dentist? No. Okay. And there are also many things in life that are pleasant, but they're not good. Many vices into which we can fall, they're, they're pleasant, for the moment at least, but they're not good. They're not helpful. They're not healthy. And here, the psalmist is saying, it is not only good, but it's pleasant for brothers to be together, for sisters to be together in unity. Now, the reason he paints this picture is so that we will appreciate, desire, miss, create, and maintain, and recover brotherly and sisterly unity when it's lost or when it's lacking. Now, we are beginning to see and I'm thrilled to say this, we're beginning to see community develop in, in our new church. And I'm delighted to see that. Uh, as I mentioned in our prayer time, I love the fact that we can pray together on Sundays and that we can pray for one another. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's spilling over into our prayer lives during the week so that we are praying for each other and that you'll take your bulletins and pray during the week one for another. But I'm, I'm loving the, the community that's developing here as we're sharing our burdens and our joys and praying for each other. I'm uh, enjoying the time on Wednesday mornings where we get together and the women study the Bible. And the men, what we do is we, we talk for a while and then we pray for each other. And we talk about what's going on in our lives. We talk about our struggles, our needs, our difficulties, and our triumphs. And we pray for each other. Uh, our community group on Thursdays is also, it's, it's, it's coming together and it's, it's, we're getting to know each other and, 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 and supporting each other in different ways. And also the one-on-one interactions that we have during the week. But one thing that I've seen that's difficult um, is uh, it talks about how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. In other words, they're together. They, they spend time together. And that seems to be an obstacle in modern life, and it seems to be an obstacle here in our culture, but I'm cheered by the fact that uh, Tim Keller started a church in Manhattan, and if there's anywhere where it's difficult to get people together, it's got to be in a city that never sleeps like Manhattan, where people are rushing in and rushing out and busy and moving in and moving out and so on. But they've, they've really struggled and really tried and really accomplished in many ways to be able to build community there, which cheered me. Because I thought, if they had obstacles and were able to build community, then certainly we can build community here by taking and making opportunities to dwell together, to be together. And he describes it in colloquial terms. He says, uh, the essence of becoming a disciple is, to put it colloquially, becoming like the people we hang out with the most. And so, we need to look for opportunities to do what? Hang out. Hang out together and sharpen each other. I've been in not many churches. I'm glad that as a pastor I have not had many different pastorates. I've been in just a very few. I was an associate pastor in a a suburb, a middle class suburb of, of Baltimore, right out of seminary. And I was just there for a few years, but I saw community there. 
it was a church of young people. Uh, the adults were most of them in their 30s, 20s, and 30s, having their first children, uh, getting into their first apartment, maybe moving from their first apartment to their starter home. But I saw how this church came together and was unified. They had a prayer chain. Uh, that was before the Internet. Yes, kids, there was life before the Internet. They had uh, only what we call landlines. We just called them telephones in those days, but now they're called landlines. But they had a prayer chain. If you had a prayer need, you called the first person, and that person prayed, and called the second person, and that person prayed, and called the third person, and that person prayed, until that person was thoroughly prayed for and the need went out. Uh, they also had a food chain. If there was a, if there was a birth, if there was a, an accident, if there was a death, if there was any sort of need, the food chain went into action. So that family did not have to worry about food. Food would appear every day for, I think, a week, and it could be extended beyond that as well. Didn't have a lot of money as people were moving, and so guess who moved? Uh, people from the apartment to the starter home. Well, they rented a U-Haul. The guys showed up, and sometimes the women showed up as well, and we moved each other. And it was a, it was an amazing community, and we were there. We were there in the hospital, and we were there beside the, the deathbed, and we were there in the funeral home. It was a wonderful community. And then you say, well, it was a suburb, and you could do that. And now, uh, after that, we were in Mexico City for four years, but then we were in Guadalajara. And to give you an idea, Guadalajara in population is about the size of Dade County and Broward County together. Okay, that's one city. So you can imagine how overwhelming that could be and how difficult it could be in a city like that. But in our church, one of the sticky points was community. And people would come to our church, and they would say, wow, we've never heard the Bible taught. And most people have never heard the Bible really taught, but they would also say, something's different here. You all really love each other. And the same thing, sometimes we cause problems in hospitals. If somebody was sick, sometimes they'd have to come to us and say, okay, not so many of you, please, please keep it down, because people rush to be there. When there were funerals, even of people that we didn't know, but if they were related to people in our church, oftentimes we'd be looking around saying, who are all these people? Well, it's, it's the church gathered. We're, we're, we're here supporting each other. And sometimes we'd have difficult things that would happen. Uh, sometimes we had uh, uh, young ladies become pregnant outside of wedlock, and uh, we didn't skirt these things. We would deal with them as, as a family and as a community, and the fathers would bring them to the the elders, and the elders would deal lovingly and tenderly, and then we would bring the whole thing before the congregation. And one Sunday, there were there was a group visiting from another church in the States, and I thought, oh, great, we're going to be airing out our dirty laundry before this group because the young lady was coming before the congregation with her father that day to talk about the situation. And, uh, and we she talked, her father talked, I talked, we, we prayed for, and then afterwards people came up and hugged them and loved them and welcomed them and, and worked with them to, to straighten out that which needed to be straightened out. And one of the visitors said to me, I've never seen anything like that. That's how the church should work. And I say, praise be to God. In good times and in bad times, that we can come together as a community. And people would have needs, sometimes falling on hard times, and their electric bills were paid, and their gas bills were paid, and sometimes cars were purchased for people that needed cars, and, and it was a family, it was a community, even in, in a big city. And so having seen it in the past, I'm sure that here we can also experience that kind of community if we will get into the habit of hanging out with each other, and so encouraging each other daily. Additionally, if we look at this this song, going back to the song, if we're correct about the use of the songs of ascent, this song expressed the beauty of the unity of brothers and sisters in the faith 
from various backgrounds as they joined together in worship. Jews, as we've noticed, became increasingly diverse over the centuries, but Christians are even more diverse. Christians are even more diverse, and I have to say, uh, Christians are in every nation uh, on the globe today, thanks be to God. Uh, And I have to say, we have to admit that Christians have an imperfect record in terms of uniting people of different races and cultures and languages and backgrounds. We have an imperfect record, but I also think it is fair to say that we have the best record out there. That is to say, we, we haven't done as well as we could, we haven't done as well as we should, we haven't done as well as we, I hope we will in the future, of of uniting people of, of different races and different cultures and different languages and different backgrounds. But there's no other organization out there that has come even close. And so, if you are considering the Christian faith, considering the Christian faith, the unifying power of the gospel message should be one of its most attractive points. It unifies us in two ways. The, the gospel message unifies us to God. It takes away a barrier between us and God. And then, as a corollary of that, it takes away barriers between us. Let's look at a couple of verses. Ephesians 2, it's on page 1079. 1079, and here Paul puts it together. And in the beginning of 2, running through chapter 2 here, Ephesians, it talks about that we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's how it begins. Uh, and then it says that God had mercy on us in His grace. And in verse 8, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here it says that we have been saved before God, forgiven of our sins, because He has come, Christ has come and taken away our sins, so that we might have our relationship to God restored. That's what he's calling salvation here. And then in verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, that is non-Jews, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, Gentile and Jew, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. He preached peace to those who were far off, preached peace to those who were near. So those who were far off, we were the ones who were far off. Those who were near were the Jews. Now, see what God has done here. In Christ, he is, He's taken away the separation between us and Him, and through faith, we're given what's called salvation, the restoration of that relationship. But it says it also took away the difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, who established the difference between Jew and Gentile? God did. God did. He established that difference by calling out the Israelite people for Himself. So He made that differentiation in humanity. But we have made many others. We have made many other differentiations among us. And he has taken away the one that he made, but he also takes away the ones that we have made. And I want to show you one more verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. It's on page 1088. Colossians 3, 11. 
says this, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Now those are distinctions that God created by calling a people and, and giving them circumcision. So he, he made that distinction. So now that distinction that God has made is erased. But then it goes on to talk about distinctions that we have made. Barbarian, one who didn't speak the Greek language, uh, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Who made the differentiation? Who, who started calling people Scythians? Well, that, that's something that, that's a, a designation that we've made, and barbarians, that's something we've made, and slave and free. We've made these things, and God is saying, in Christ, in Christ, these are taken away as well. And so, for those of us who are Christians, against the backdrop of individual isolation in our society, against the backdrop of a nation torn apart along racial and ideological lines, and against the backdrop of a world at war among religious and political lines, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to show them unity, but unity in Jesus Christ. Now, getting back to the psalm, what is that unity like? In verses 2 and 3. Well, glad you asked. Because uh, David says here, it is like. And he says it is like two things. Now, a simile is a comparison between two things. Using the words either like or as. And here he uses two similes. And he says, first simile, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now that simile probably doesn't do much for us. We're thinking greasy hair, greasy beard, greasy garments. That's not really a real attractive idea for us. But for the Jews it would have been. Who was Aaron? Aaron was Moses' brother-in-law. Moses was the one who led them out of Egypt. So Moses' brother-in-law, Aaron, he was the very first high priest. And the high priest had a job. His job was to represent the people before God. And his job was to present sacrifices before God to take away the sins of the people. And uh, he didn't choose that for himself. He was anointed to do that. And he was anointed with a special oil that no one else was allowed to use for any other reason. We have the recipe of that oil in Exodus 30. And we have the description of the anointing there in those chapters of Exodus, Exodus 28, also in Leviticus. But he was anointed. So this was a big deal. This, This anointing of Aaron was saying you can have a relationship with God. Why? Because God has provided an intermediary who can offer something that will take away your sins so that you can have a relationship with God. So, for an Israelite, this is a, this is a big, good, and pleasant uh, to say, wow, Aaron being anointed enables us to have this relationship with God. The, um, it's often assumed and often thought that Christianity... Uh, is uh, it, it is uh, an outgrowth, it is uh, of Judaism and of the Old Testament, but it's often thought that Christianity has, has shot off in a, a novel new direction. And that we have kind of abandoned the Old Testament ways and we've shot off in a new direction. But I would maintain that Christianity is actually much closer to Old Testament faith than modern Judaism. And why do I say that? Because we maintain the need for a high priest. And we maintain the need for a sacrifice for sins. We have not gotten away from this central idea of Old Testament faith that the only way that we can have a relationship with God is if there is a designated 
high priest who offers a sacrifice that is acceptable to God that will enable us to be in relationship with God again. And we have not, not varied from that. We continue with that insistence. But we do say that that great high priest has come and he has offered one sacrifice that was sufficient. That's why we no longer offer sacrifices, even though we maintain that a sacrifice is necessary. The whole letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament is all about this. If you will look, for example, at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, on page 1107, 1107, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, you will find these words. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so there you have continuation. We need a high priest. We need a sacrifice. But in Jesus Christ, we have a high priest. We have the high priest. And we have that sacrifice that will once and for all take away our sins if we have faith in him. So, does this seem good and pleasant to you? Very good and pleasant. And so now we can enter into this good and pleasantness. That's how great brotherly, sisterly unity is. It's like that. It's that good. It's, it's, it's like having our representative before God. The second simile is this. The dew of Hermon descending on Mount Zion. The dew of Hermon descending on Mount Zion. Now there's a geographical problem here. Geographical problem. And the translation, this says, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. But you know what? The dew of Hermon does not fall on the mountains of Zion. It can fall on the mountains of Zion because it, the, it, Hermon is not in the same place. Hermon is in the north, and Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is in the center part of the uh, of the country. So what happened here? Is is the psalmist confused about his geography? It's impossible. He lived there. He knew what he was talking about. He knew about Hermon. He knew about Jerusalem. But remember, this is poetry. Remember, this is poetry, and what he's saying is, I think, this. It is as if, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on the mountains of Zion. And Hermon was a richly dewed area, and Mount Zion was more arid and, and drier and hotter. And so he was saying, it's this good, it's this pleasant, as if the, the dew that, that falls on, on Hermon we're also falling here on this hot and arid place and refreshing us from above. We could think about that. Is uh, We could say something similar like, it, it, it is like uh, an Alaskan breeze blowing through South Florida in August. Does that seem good and pleasant to you? I was thrilled this past week with one aspect of the rain. We got down into the upper 70s. It felt so cool here, exactly. And it's like that. That was good and pleasant. So we can enter into something of the second simile. But now look at the conclusion here. The conclusion is at the end. For there, the Lord has commanded 
the blessing, life evermore. Where this harmony exists, where this unity exists, where this brotherly, sisterly unity, togetherness exists, we recognize that there God has commanded his blessing. And what is that blessing that is among people of different backgrounds and faiths who join in that common, not faiths, but different cultures, join in that common faith? What is that blessing that we share together? What is it that unites us together? And here it says, the last line, life forevermore. This is remarkable. This is remarkable because in the Old Testament, we don't get much about this. We don't get much about eternal life in the Old Testament. It doesn't come up much. It's, it's sort of vague what happens after death in the Old Testament. There's this idea of, of death, but then what happens after that? And there are a few hints throughout the Old Testament, and this is one of those hints that points us forward to something more concrete that's coming in the future. Life evermore. But when we come to the New Testament, we find that this concept comes to the fore, especially in the Gospel of John, where I think this expression is used about 18 times in the Gospel of John. Uh, You probably have heard of a certain verse in the Gospel of John. You see it at sporting events. You see it on uh, athletes. They're... uh, the shadow that they put under their eyes, they write it on there, some of them do. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that uh, that, that uh, whoever believes in Him might not perish but have what? Eternal life. Eternal life, everlasting life. And so there it's spelled out. That, that vague sort of mysterious thing in the Old Testament that crops up every once in a while and, and leaves us wondering where this is going. Well, we have the answer that God has given His Son so that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. I want you to notice one more thing about this song. Notice the direction. It's a song of what? Ascents. Going up, right? But notice, notice what happens in this song. It is like the precious oil on the head running where? Down on the beard, on the beard, of Aaron, and then running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which does what? Falls. This is the same verb translated differently here, but this three times it's the same verb. It's The oil goes down on the beard, the oil goes down on the robes, and the dew goes down on Mount Zion. This is a song of ascents, but what's the direction of this song? Everything is coming where? From above, and it's all coming down. So this is an interesting combination, isn't it? These pilgrims were, were doing what they could to, to, to go up to God. But the message of the psalm is what? No. Rather, if you want God's blessing, it will only be if God comes down to you. And that's exactly what happened. And we might do whatever we can to try to, to climb our way or work our way up to God But the only way we are going to have community, communion with God, and communion one with another, is if God comes down to us and gives it to us from above. And the good news is this. That's exactly what He has already done. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that in this song of ascents, we celebrate Your descent. We celebrate the fact that you have come down and you have given us all that we need. 
We thank you for our great high priest who intercedes for us and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. We thank you for that eternal life that we may have in him. And we pray, O oh God, that in him, that you would come down and give Florida Coast Church the privilege of being a community, a community of faith that unites people from various backgrounds so that the world might look in and say, I don't understand your doctrine. I don't know who you are or what you believe, but I love what I'm saying. I love the fact that brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant that is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.